The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Exodus 20, we come to the Ten Commandments at last, and in the Ten Commandments we find uh, one of the highest expressions of the nature and the mind of God, and certainly one of the most famous uh, sections of the Bible. What I'm going to do is read the Ten Commandments, and then tonight our purpose is not so much at all to go through the Ten Commandments and understand them verse by verse. We'll do that, God willing, over succeeding weeks. Instead, what I want to do is try to understand the place of the Ten Commandments in the Christian life. Uh, are the Ten Commandments binding for us today? What role should they play? Uh, are they unique compared to other aspects of the law of God? These are the kind of big picture questions we're going to ask tonight as we study in Exodus 20. And now the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so these are the Ten Commandments. Now recently, of course, the Ten Commandments have been in the forefront of our mind, mostly because Judge Roy Moore from Alabama made that significant stand in which he had a huge, heavy inscription of the Ten Commandments in his courtroom and defied higher authorities requiring him to remove it. And so this was um, uh, very much in the mind of evangelical Christians. Some of you have followed it in World Magazine and other places, the debate, and some evangelicals flocked to Judge Moore's side. Uh, Doug Phillips and others uh, say that the Ten Commandments are really a uh, foundation to all of American jurisprudence, and without them we really don't have any legal system. Because if you don't have any absolutes legally, uh, how can you have any secondary laws and any certain certitude at all in a legal system? And it's an argument that is well worth listening to. Other 
evangelicals wondered if that was the place to draw the line in the sand and wondered about submission to authority and all those kinds of things. But in any case, we can see that the Ten Commandments are a significant scripture and significant for us and try to understand. The questions that we want to understand today is what role do the Ten Commandments have for us today? Uh, now that we are New Covenant people, uh, what role should they play in our lives? Do we have to obey them or have we been so-called set free from the law, uh, as some say? And that any attempt to press the Ten Commandments to, onto the consciences of Christians today is a form of legalism. And we want to avoid this at all costs. And so pastors and others should not take the Ten Commandments and press them onto the consciences of Christians because we are no longer under the law but under grace. Another kind of general question is, were these Ten Commandments ever binding on non-Jews? Were they meant for the whole world or are they just, just only a kind of a national charter for the Jewish nation? So these are the kind of questions that are before us uh, today. Now, we don't come to this question in a vacuum, do we? If we understand our age and the time that we live in, this is really an, an age of lawlessness. We live in a time of lawlessness. It's not a neutral question for us, but rather we come to it out of a context. We live in an age characterized by lawlessness. So it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.7, it says there the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. Now this is a mysterious text and we're not going to get into eschatology tonight as much as some of you would desire it. What is the secret force that holds back lawlessness? When will he be taken away? What is the significant moment when the secret uh, power or restrainer of lawlessness is removed? And I guess at that point lawlessness will have its full reign on the earth. What does all that mean? We don't know. But it says in the text way back then, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Well, if it was already at work then, it stands to reason it's at work now. We live in an age in which the power of lawlessness is at work. It says in 1 John 3, 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, this is a typical, uh, simple definition by John. 1 John is filled with them. God is love. God is light. Sin is lawlessness. This is the kind of thing that he does. But it's worth sitting up and taking notice. Any sin, therefore, is a transgression or a breaking of the law of God. Now, Jesus predicted that this lawlessness would happen in the, in the Olivet Discourse, in which he's talking about the end of the world. Matthew 24, 14, it says, Because lawlessness is increased, the love of most will grow cold. In other words, there's a direct relationship between the great increase of lawlessness and a lovelessness in the world. And I think we see that even today. The natural love uh, that would be perhaps between a mother and a child or between a husband and a wife, between siblings or friends, uh, we can see the effect of lawlessness on each of these relationships. And so we have to understand our times. We have to understand what's going on around us as we come to the question of the Ten Commandments. Secondly, we must also understand the nature of redemption. What did Jesus come to do? What was his work? Now, in order to do this, in order to understand redemption, we must establish once and for all, I don't know how long we're going to be studying the Ten Commandments or the laws that follow, but I do know this, it is easy for us to misunderstand the role of law in our redemption. We never have been and never will be, and nor are we today, saved by works of the law. It is impossible for us 
to work our way to heaven by obeying the Ten Commandments. Now, we have said this in a thousand different ways, and we're going to continue saying it because it is so important. It is just part of our nature to think that we can kind of work our way back to God, and that if we really kind of work at it, we will, we will eventually kind of live up to God's standard. Of course, the problem with all that is what happened to the previous disobediences? How do you pay for those? And so without a redeemer and without blood shed on the cross, we wouldn't be saved anyway because we can't use present good deeds to pay for past sins. It's impossible. But uh, it says in Romans 3.20, Therefore, no one will be justified uh, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And I think this is very much the case. And as we study the Ten Commandments more, and especially in the light of the commentary on the Ten Commandments that Jesus gave us in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I tell you that anyone is angry with his brother is in danger of hell. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but anyone who lusts has already committed adultery in his heart. This is the, the commentary. We're going to find that the Ten Commandments actually continues to reveal uh, sin rather than be a path of salvation for us. And so we must establish this. We are never going to be saved by the works of the law. But secondly, in terms of this understanding of redemption, we are going to be saved from sin. That is what Jesus came to do. It says in Matthew 121, the angel said to Joseph, you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now this is very encouraging to me, and as I've talked more about this on Wednesday nights about our great salvation, I've come to realize very much that what that means is that Jesus came to save us from everything that sin has done to us. Isn't that wonderful? And what has sin done to you? Well, it's done a lot to you, actually. It's affected everything about you. It's affected the way you think. It's affected the way you feel. It's affected the way you plan. It's affected every relationship you've ever had and ever will have. It's affected most significantly your relationship with God. It's affected your body. And it's affected the world you live in. One could say infected in each of those cases because that's what it's done. It's attacked us. And so Jesus came to save us from sin in all those areas. Isn't that marvelous? A complete and full salvation from sin. That's what he's doing. And so I think what that means is that when he's done saving you, you'll be done with sin forever. I'm looking forward to that. I am just so looking forward to that. And what that means is I can go back to the law and say this is the very thing that he's going to work in me. He's going to make me no longer a transgressor. Oh, he's going to make me fully obedient from the heart to his law. It says in Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The King James Version says, save to the uttermost. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, save right to the end, all, all the way to the omega stop on this train. That's what we're going to go. And that's perfection. We are going to be absolutely perfect when Jesus is done with us. And at that point, he won't be done with us at all, but he'll spend eternity with us because finally we are worthy of his full attention because we are no longer sinful. And so this is the nature of our sin. We are not saved by works of the law, but we are saved from sin in everything it does for us. Now, sin is lawlessness, as we've said, and it was our habitual state 
before we were Christians. It's what we're used to. We're used to being lawless people. We're used to breaking. Now, I'm not saying that the people who are sitting in the pews here or myself were as lawless as we could be. I'm just saying that that's what sin was, and sin was at work in us. It was finding the laws of God and just bucking the system all the time. That's what sin does. Tell me a law so I can break it. Now, we have other reasons for restraining ourselves, if we're kind of moral people or law-abiding citizens, that kind of thing. But that's the work of sin in us, lawlessness. It says in Romans 6.19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in further righteousness, or as it says in that translation, sanctification. So you used to be kind of on the road to ever-increasing lawlessness. That's what it was like for you before you were a Christian. Now instead, we are constantly presenting ourselves to righteousness with a, with a building momentum toward further righteousness. That's the Christian life. Now, Christ hates lawlessness. He hates it. He hates the principle of lawlessness. He hates the nature that we have of finding the laws of God and breaking them. This is the very thing he despises, and he came to destroy it. And in the end, he will condemn lawless people. It says in Hebrews 1.9 concerning Christ, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Isn't that incredible? And it's because of this that the Father loves the Son, because he is so much like the Father. The Father loves righteousness and hates lawlessness. It says, because you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above all your companions. And in Matthew 13, 41 and 42, it says, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he's going to clean up his kingdom by getting rid of everything that causes stumbling and those people who are committed to lawlessness. That's what he's going to do. In Matthew 7:23, he says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So what I'm trying to establish here is that as a part of our understanding of redemption is understanding the mind and nature of Christ. And he just is absolutely set against lawlessness. He hates it, and he will have it out of his kingdom. He wants it gone. He wants to get rid of it. Christ redeemed us from lawlessness. That's what he bought you out of by his own blood. How did he do that? Well, first, he did it by covering your lawless deeds, by covering those times you broke the Ten Commandments, by covering those times you transgressed the law of God. It says in Romans 4, 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Isn't that a magnificent good thing? Didn't you thank God for it earlier in our worship? To bow your heads and say, thank you, God, that all of my lawless deeds have been forgiven through Christ. And that all of my future breakings of the law, they are already forgiven through the blood of Christ. But he doesn't just stop there. That's just forgiveness. He also breaks the power of lawlessness in its hold over you. He breaks the power of canceled sin, said Wesley, sets the prisoner free. 1 John 3, 4 through 6 says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared that he might take away our sins. 
and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now you come to that just like I do, saying, oh no, I'm not a Christian. If you're sinning at all, you're not a Christian. That's not what it's saying. Actually, you should be overjoyed at a verse like that, not wondering are you a Christian, but rather saying, this is exactly what Jesus is doing in me. To be in Christ means he is in the process of taking away everything in me that wants to sin. And he's not going to be done with that until I am perfect and holy, glorious in heaven. And so he is in the process of breaking the power of lawlessness over our lives. Now, take a minute, if you would, and turn to Romans chapter 8. And look with me there in Romans 8, and you're going to see how both of these are summed up. Both the fact that he has paid the penalty for your sins, your lawlessness, and he is taking away the power of lawlessness in your life. Romans 8, 1 through 4 begins marvelously. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, if you just look at the, those two, that really sums it up. There's no condemnation for you. Why? Because the payment has been made. The lawless deeds have been paid for. And so God will not require twice what's already been paid amply the first time. It would be unjust for him to require at your hand what he already required at your substitute's hand, Jesus. And so he is not going to require from you on Judgment Day what he already required from Christ. There's no condemnation, no hell. All the sin is paid for. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. What does that mean? He is transforming you from within. He sets you free from any authority that sin has over you. And now you're a different person. Now I want to understand what the law of the spirit of life is. We're going to talk more about that. I think you all have an instinct, don't you, to answer our question, are the Ten Commandments still binding on us today? The answer is, it depends what you mean by binding. That's what the answer is, okay? But what it means, if it, if it means, do I, should I still care about the Lord our God being our only God and making idols and honoring my parents and not committing adultery and murdering? You better believe it. Absolutely, these things are still binding on my conscience today and binding on my behavior. I'm not set free so that I may go break all these commandments. And if that's the way we think, there's great doubt as to whether the spirit of holiness is in us. We have been set free. We're actually risen up to a higher standard. We've, we've been raised to a higher standard. I'll talk about that in a moment. But it says what the law, standing outside of us, written on tablets of stone, what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by your flesh, the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of the flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in sinful man in order that, look at 8.4, this is so vital, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. What does that mean? It means that God is going to be working the, the requirements of the law on you from within. Hebrews says the same thing. Look over at Hebrews 8. You're going to see the same thing in Hebrews 8, a marvelous thing. Again, what we're talking about is the nature of redemption tonight. We're looking at this question about the Ten Commandments. You have to understand that Jesus has freed us from lawlessness by forgiving all of our lawless deeds by his blood and by breaking the power of lawlessness from within. 
And we see this, we've seen it in, already in, in Romans chapter 8, and now we see it in Hebrews 8. There it talks about the Old Covenant and that there was something wrong with it. What was wrong with the Old Covenant? Nothing wrong with the letters, nothing wrong with the actual articulation, but something wrong with the methodology if the goal was to bring you to heaven. And it wasn't that God made a mistake. He knew it would never bring you to heaven. He had, some, he had a different purpose in mind in giving it. But uh, it was powerless, and we're going to see that. Look in Hebrews 8, verse 7. Uh, it says, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. Uh, what do we mean by that? Well, there was something wrong with the first covenant. It couldn't make you perfect. It couldn't do anything to you except condemn you because of your, your flesh. Uh, no place would have been sought for another, but God found fault with the people. That is so important. Do you see what I'm saying in Hebrews 8, 8? God didn't find fault with the covenant. He didn't find fault with the Ten Commandments. There's nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments. There's something wrong with the people. The people are broken. And the whole thing with the Ten Commandments is that the people get convinced that they're broken. That's the beauty of it, and it makes us humble and brokenhearted and waiting for a Savior, and Jesus comes and saves us. That's a beautiful thing. But if there, he said, God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Here it is. This is the new covenant, the essence of the new covenant. He says, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Do you see that? God is going to take the Ten Commandments and he's going to inscribe it by the finger of the Spirit into your very being, on your heart. He's going to write it with flaming letters in your heart. So that the Ten Commandments, and not just the Ten Commandments, but I would think another summary would be the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is what the Holy Spirit writes on the tablet of your heart. This is what he makes you become. He says, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, lawlessness, and remember their sins no more. So there it is. That's how Jesus redeems us. He covers our lawless acts and he breaks the power of lawlessness over us by writing the law of God in our hearts. That's what he does. Now, Jesus lived this way. God's law was written in his own heart, wasn't it? It says in Psalm 40, verse 8, it says, I desire to do the will, to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Isn't that wonderful? God's law is already was written in Jesus' heart. Well, I said this morning that the whole work of salvation is that God kind of did I use the word smushes? He smushes you to conform you to Jesus. He's conforming you to be like Jesus. What does that mean? It means that you're going to think about the law the way Jesus did. His law, God's law, was written in Jesus' heart, and it's going to be written in yours too. And so the Ten Commandments are going to just be flowing out. Finally, in understanding salvation, you are now under the law in this regard. Law-keeping is a measure of your love for God. It is in obeying his law that you demonstrate love for him. If you look over the Ten Commandments and, uh, and, and, and take them in, and also the two great commandments that Jesus gave, which are a summary of all of the ten commandments of God, you don't say, boy, I get, to, I get to do that now, and I get to avoid that, and I don't have to do that anymore. That's not the spirit with which you come to it. Rather, you say, I delight to do your will, O God. I want to follow your ways. 
And so, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. And this is why I say we're on a much higher authority now. Is it not easier to sin against letters engraved in stone than to sin against Jesus himself? Isn't that much more painful? I remember counseling with somebody who had transgressed in a, in a significant way, and I said to that individual, the fact is that Jesus wasn't enough for you. And I saw the wince on the face. Oh, it was painful. It hurt. And the reason that kind of thing hurts is because we are no longer sinning against an inanimate object. We're sinning against an intense person who suffered and died on the cross for us, who's standing right in front of us and saying, how could you do that to me? And so that's what it means to be in the law, the spirit of life. It's a much higher law. And we don't, the, the other law is baby stuff compared to having God himself living within us and saying, be holy because I'm holy, be holy because I'm holy. That's just a higher standard all the time. The Ten Commandments really just, in effect, kind of structure and baby steps compared to the full wholehearted obedience that Jesus models for us. And so that's the salvation. Let's summarize what we've seen. Ours is an age of lawlessness, and our hearts were steeped in a principle of lawlessness. The essence of sin is lawlessness, disobedience to God the King. Thus, the essence of salvation is forgiveness for all of our past rebellions against God's holy law and a changed heart to live out a lawful and holy life in submission to God the King. This was Christ's example to us in his life. This was Christ's work for us on the cross. This is what he's promised for us in the future. And so, in this sense, the law of God is written in our hearts. And uh, I thought for sure I'd be able to get through this whole outline tonight, so we're going to have to just continue next time. In what sense is the law? Now, there are three things that I want you to understand and we'll be meditating on, and God willing, we'll come to it next time. We've already understood the nature of redemption. Secondly, we need to understand the perpetuity of the law. In what sense is the law permanent? In what sense, Jesus said, uh, that not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen would by any means disappear from the law, and that anyone who breaks one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The perpetuity of the law. And third, we need to understand the different kinds of laws that God gave to Israel. And in that way, I think we'll be able to answer the question, is the Ten, are the Ten Commandments still binding for us today? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.